I'm audio editor Sarah Schleed, and welcome to Odds and Ends, a podcast all about collecting little stories, and sometimes even big stories, from each corner of campus and Austin. In this episode, the Daily Texan Audio Department brings you stories for those that are new to the 40 Acres and might want to know more about the curiosities UT and Austin have to offer. First up is a story from Brian Kauser. Brian visited the Pecan Street Festival, one of Austin's longest-running art festivals, to see why it attracts students, families, and adults alike. The Pecan Street Festival is a free arts festival held in downtown Austin's 6th Street Historic District. The juried festival attracts hundreds of local and national artisans offering original handcrafted creations. The festival has been running for 30 years and features family-friendly entertainment and music on three stages. A lot of the talent's really uh, good and original and inclusive. Like, you know, we have babies that come to our shows, we have grandparents that come to our shows, you know, all races, whatever. You know, it's pretty diverse. When Edwin Waller designed Austin's street grid, he named the North-South Streets after Texas Rivers and recommended numbers as designations for the East-West Streets. Instead, they were named for trees. That decision was later reversed, and they were renamed with numbers. Though Pecan Street became 6th Street, the festival honors its original name. For The Daily Texan, I'm Brian Kauser. Pecan Street Festival is a great occasion for those looking for some fun downtown. To find fun, service, or a sense of community on campus, though, students can choose from over 1,100 student organizations. But what does it take to start one of these organizations in the first place? Audio staffer Addie Costello has the answer. Just weeks ago, hundreds of student orgs camped out on Speedway to recruit new members. You may have passed a couple and thought to yourself, that's really an org? But even the most niche campus groups put the necessary work to earn university recognition and the ability to recruit along Speedway. But exactly how much work does it take to establish an org? The rules are really designed to not say, no, you can't, but to help student organizations find a way to say, here's how you can. That's Sarah Kennedy, the Director of Strategic and Executive Communication at the Office of the Dean of Students. I talked to her to try and better understand the work that goes into gaining university recognition as an org. She explained the criteria and the requirements potential org leaders have to meet. We want to make it as easy as possible for students to start student organizations, um, but we did change a couple of the requirements starting in January of 2019. Um, So one of those is that organizations have to have uh, 10 members. It used to be three, 
and uh, there is a fee and it costs $20, which also used to be 10, but uh, those costs help us cover things like um, paying for maintenance so that we can have student organizations reserve rooms on the weekends because uh, someone has to pay for the cost of like facilities management and being able to make sure that everything gets cleaned up. They're going to have to do a couple of things. They're going to have to find some members. They're going to have to attend an event that is called an officer orientation, where they learn a lot about student activities, which is the unit in our office that supports student organizations, what the rules are, what are some of the things they need to know, and they'll and they'll kind of walk through everything that they're gonna have to know to be successful as a new student organization. They're also gonna have to write a constitution for their organization. What are the rules? Writing an entire constitution may sound daunting, but club organizer Eric Mendoza doesn't remember his time writing club policies being too painful. If it's something as important to you as it is and that you need it on campus, you're gonna get it done. And the creating the constitution, creating the bylaws. Not entirely all that difficult. Mendoza is a founding member of Valley Horns, a new campus org created to connect and support students from the Rio Grande Valley area in South Texas and various border communities on campus. He explained the most work for him came after Valley Horns got the stamp of approval. Once you're an established org, you, you know how, how everything's going to go, right? So, you know, all these big orgs, all these frats and sororities, you know how to go about your business, right? You know that, oh, this is how we're going to pay dues, this is how we're going to go about this one event, and this is how we're going to coordinate it. But with small orgs that are barely starting, it's very hard because your leadership, um, we're still learning, right? So then we're trying to learn and trying to run events and trying to coordinate events, but, you know, we're gaining experience. So it's all a, a stepping stone. Although it has been a learning curve, Mendoza, a second-year theater and dance major, doesn't mind working through the kinks of running a new club. The work ethic that concerns the organization, that's all based off of our passion, right? The new line of officers, they're all passionate about the valley and the border in their own type of way. But what if official organization status isn't enough? That was the dilemma for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu president Rusty Summers. Our primary motivation was a difficulty of securing a regular, dedicated time and place to train. Summers, a PharmD grad student, solved his club's dilemma by obtaining a recreational sports sponsorship for the first time this year. The transition from student organization to a rec sports sponsored club is an enormous amount of planning and work. It's never ending work. Where do we find that form? Which form do we need? Where do we submit this document? How do we respond to that request? How do we make this request? You know, what do we do if we miss this deadline? You know, what's the deadline for this other? Rec sports, you know, they want to see intercollegiate competition. They want to see philanthropy. They want to see community service. They want to see background checks for all your coaches. 
They want to see financial accountability. They want to see fundraising. They want a regular training schedule and they want strong attendance at those practices. They want strong participation in all of the recruitment events and orientations. That's a long list of things and that's not half of it. And any one of those things is a lot of work by itself. Although gaining the sponsorship took so much effort, Summers does not believe the process should be made easier. One of the effects of requiring so much work and, and, and investment into the process is that only those clubs that are reasonably well managed can meet those criteria. And only those leaders who are genuinely committed to their cause are going to be willing to follow through with that work. Maybe now that you know the time and effort it took for that bizarre org on Speedway to earn their spot among thousands of recognized orgs, you will show a little compassion and pick up a flyer. And if knowing the work that goes into creating and maintaining a campus group hasn't entirely discouraged you, Sarah Kennedy offers her advice. If you're trying to start a student organization, my biggest piece of advice is do it. It's so exciting. For The Daily Texan, I'm Addie Costello. If you've ventured off campus, you've probably seen one of Austin's moon towers. These 165-foot tall structures are scattered all around the city, with one even sitting in the center of Zilker Park. When Aurora Berry first came to UT, she saw them and wanted to know more. Here's what she found. The Austin Moon Towers. These landmarks are scattered across town, brightening the night sky with their lights perched high in the air. They're somewhat of a fixture around Austin, inspiring everything from bars to comedy festivals to student housing. They've even inspired a few brave souls to climb 165 feet to the top. These metal oddities also make an appearance in the film Dazed and Confused, where UT's very own Matthew McConaughey announces, There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. It's out at the moon tower. Full kegs. Everybody's gonna be there. Y'all to go. You can't seem to get away from them. But what do we know about them? I asked some UT students about their knowledge of the moon towers. Um, maybe it's tall? Um, <laughs> Sounds fancy. No, absolutely nothing about the Moon Towers. I think I heard a couple boys joking about it once about how it like protects you, but that could be real, that could not be real. I have no idea. I don't even know what it protects you from. I just that's what I heard. Yeah, I mean there's there's all over the place. I know there's one over on um, the east side, it's like MLK and Chacon. I used to drive by there a bunch. And then there's some in like Dairytown, I think. There's they're all over really. I mean, you look up in the sky somewhere where there's maybe not so many like uh, skyscrapers, you can probably see one from a little ways off. Clearly, we have more questions than answers here. I decided to take these questions to UT's go-to expert on the moon towers to find out more. I'm Bruce Hunt. I'm an associate professor in the history department. I've taught here since um, 1985. My specialty, my area is the history of science and technology, and I've taught a course on the history of electrical technology for a long time in which I've had students do a lot of work on the local history of uh, electricity in Austin. The electric streetcar system in the 1890s, the Austin Dam that was built in the early 1890s. And one thing people like to talk about are the Moonlight Towers, which were also put up in the mid-1890s. The Moon Towers are old. They were purchased by the city almost 125 years ago during an electrical boom in the city, and Austin wasn't even the first to get them. 
These kinds of towers were built in famous one in San Jose, California. It was one of the first in the 1880s, uh, and they became very common. Detroit, in particular, had a very large system, hundreds of these tower lights. Austin was kind of late to the uh, tower light business. Austin didn't stay behind for long. The city began to make plans for their own towers to be powered by electricity from the recently constructed Austin Dam. So in 1895, the city of Austin contracted with a company from Indiana that provided tower lights throughout the Midwest to erect about 30 165-foot high towers around the city, each of which would have six arc lights at the top and would illuminate a wide area around them. These became known as the Moonlight Towers. The city came on hard times a few years later. The dam experienced a failure in 1900 and the city fell into debt. For a while, the lights were out on the Moon Towers, leaving the city in darkness. Fortunately, Austin found a way to revive them. The city bought a steam-powered power plant to provide the electricity and they were able to light them back up not too long after, uh, a few months after the dam failed in 1900. Most other cities, and eventually every other city, gave up their moonlight towers, gave up their tower lights for a variety of reasons. They were expensive to maintain uh, in various ways. The, the target electrodes would burn down pretty rapidly and so if you look closely at one of these moon towers today, they have a little pulley system in the middle, like a little elevator. And a man would have to go up almost every day to change the electrodes um, on each one of these, of these lights all around the city. So that's, that's some expense there and a lot of bother. Um, also in a lot of cities, Detroit, um, as taller buildings were built, the moon towers, the moonlight towers would, uh, would not shed very good light. The light would be blocked by a tall building. And so almost every place else, and eventually, as I said, every place else, took down their towers and replace them with ordinary, what we'd think of as ordinary street lights. You know, ones that are, you know, much shorter, uh, 20, 20 or 30 feet high with, uh, with incandescent bulbs on them, Edison light bulbs on them. But in Austin, Austin was uh, sort of a backwater and uh, they kept uh, the tower lights around long enough. They, were, they replaced the arc lights with incandescent lights and then with mercury vapor lights by the 1930s, which are not as bright as the original arc lights. Um, people today, they look at the moonlight towers and say, well, that's not really very bright. Well, they're not as bright as the original ones. The original ones were quite a bit brighter, uh, about twice as bright, probably. Um, anyway, they stayed around Austin into the 1950s and 1960s, and people would talk and find things from the time. People, well, those moonlight towers are kind of obsolete, and eventually they'll be replaced. Well, by that time, by the 1960s, people were nostalgic about them. And so the efforts to, and it was owned by a municipal utility, so it wasn't just a calculation by a private utility company. Um, and so the city uh, decided to keep them and even to refurbish them and to spend quite a bit of money in the 1990s to, uh, to refurbish the, the towers and to uh, uh, eventually um, uh, upgrade the light bulbs and so forth. Only 15 of the 31 towers remain standing today. Uh, some of the towers have been taken down, as I said, because of construction and just to relocate them. Uh, and then they get uh, refurbished and re-erected. One very close to campus, uh, used to be just a few blocks west of campus, is currently in storage. I don't know if it'll be put back up or not. Dr. Hunt gave a warning alongside his story. Don't climb up moonlight towers. That's my final advice for all UT students. So... Maybe they're not the best place for a party after all. 
Either way, it's comforting to know that they're up there, lighting the way for all of our wild nights. For The Daily Texan, I'm Aurora Berry. Our last story is from audio staffer Jack Farrell. Jack sat down with one of UT football Twitter's most prominent data analysts, Kyle Umlong, to learn more about the man behind the numbers. If you frequent Longhorn Twitter, you know the name Kyle Umlang. The Texas native and UT alumnus has garnered over 6,500 followers for his data sets that are all about Longhorn football. The community has dubbed him a Longhorn Twitter ambassador, and fans put his face on a sign when ESPN's College Game Day came to town for the Texas versus LSU game. He's received shout-outs from radio DJs on Austin's 104.9 The Horn and has been known to roast Aggie fans from time to time. In his first-ever interview, I sat down with Kyle Umlang to find out more about the man behind the data. If you, if you live in Texas, you're either a Longhorn or an Aggie. A lot of my family... On my mom's side were Longhorns. A lot of family on my dad's side are Aggie. My dad, he went to A&M. He, he went to their vet school. And so he always wanted me to go to A&M, but I was never really, never really into it. Uh, I, I was in, in love with Texas and Longhorns. So whenever I applied to, to schools, I had Texas as my top choice and I got in. And yeah, just been obsessed with them ever since. Who were some of your Texas football idols as a kid? In grade school, I mean, junior high, all, all those years, it was Ricky. And then once I got to college, Vince. My freshman year was when we went to the Rose Bowl against Michigan. And so I went to every home game. I, I followed them all the way to the, to the Rose Bowl. And then I was, the next year was my sophomore year is when we won. So I was right in the middle of all of it. It was like the best time to go. If you've been following the team for so long, why have you just recently started doing what you do on Twitter? I, I've been on Twitter since, I don't know, 2011, but from 2011 to 2018, I think I had like 20 tweets. I have this uh, group thread with my brother and my friend, Graham, uh, and we go back and forth during the games and throughout the offseason just talking about Texas football. So since Tom Herman became coach, like that, that group thread's been like blowing up like all day, every day. And I was like, you know, I, I'll, I'll get on Twitter and start posting stuff. Instead of posting in this thread and annoying you guys, instead of annoying them, I'll annoy people on Twitter with it. So I started posting. And I got I got a few like followers, um, like probably like a hundred or so in my first few months. Uh, but what really took a lot of I made this visual in Tableau. It, it's like the history of Texas and A&M football side by side. And so I tweeted it out. It got, it got a couple likes. Uh, a couple people retweeted it. I was like, I'm doing pretty good. And then I went to bed, and then I woke up and I had a bunch of messages from, like, my group chat I was talking about. And they're like, dude, Sam Ellinger just retweeted your tweet. So I, I logged back on Twitter, and it's over, like, a thousand likes, and I had never seen anything like that. I was like, holy crap. And and then I, 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 ever since then, like, it's I've just been blown up since then. How do you come about gathering all of the data you put into a tweet? I don't know if you're familiar with, like, scraping data off of like sites like using like using R uh, you can you can scrape stuff off of sites so I've I've used it to get a bunch of data off of uh, like sportsreference.com uh, cfbstats.com I, have, I just have a bunch of just random like data sets just I have, I have this, this giant like Dropbox folder with a bunch of data sets that I've, I've accumulated over the over the last year What's it like seeing your face blown up on a big sign on ESPN? It was hilarious and 
I don't even know the words, but it was, it was just cool, cool the word. It was so cool seeing that it validated just what I do. It's just, I love doing it. It's fun to do. As long as people are enjoying it, I will keep doing it. Kyle is living in Ohio and is taking classes online at Syracuse University to get his master's degree in applied data science, but he still makes plenty of time for his horns. For The Daily Texan, I'm Jack Farrell. That's all for this episode of Odds and Ends. This episode was made with the help of audio producers Harper Carlton and Divya Jagadish, and our music is brought to you by Blue Dot Sessions. If you want to hear more from The Daily Texan, subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Texan Audio, so you can stay up to date there, too. I'm audio editor Sarah Schleed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>